that day when the truth does not count for a whole lot. And I don't just mean dishonesty, although that's rampant as well, but I mean the idea of truth. It's a horribly inconvenient concept when you're trying to build a culture on complete and unquestioning mutual acceptance. And the most common moral word of our culture, where there's almost no moral words left to use, it's almost impossible to find something that everyone would just say, this is right and this is wrong. So we don't use moral words anymore. But the one word you still hear all the time, always and everywhere, in fact, the graduation speeches you hear all the time, because it's the dominant moral left. Well, there's two. One is save the earth, <laughs> and the other one is tolerance, that word tolerance. But it's not tolerance that's really being asked for. That word has actually changed its definition. There have been times in American history when tolerance was very important. The colonies uh, at times demonstrated religious intolerance. Anglican Virginians persecuted Baptists, threw, threw them in jail. New England Puritans ejected Quakers out of their colonies, and if they wouldn't leave, they would bore holes in their tongues, and if they wouldn't leave after that, they would hang them. Uh, in the 19th century, during great waves of immigration, people were sometimes intolerant of new races and new languages and religions, religions that were proliferating in America. And they didn't treat them fairly or with justice. And so at various times, small groups or new groups sought for tolerance, the right to exist free of molestation or harassment and to possess equal protection under the law. But never, during all of that time, all those hundreds of years of conflict and difficulty and striving for some level of equality on a political level, it was never conceived that the Quakers expected the Puritans to say that Quaker theology was just as true as Calvinism. They never asked that. They never sought that. And the Baptists never dreamed because it would be outrageous to ask the Anglicans to regard Baptist theology as correct or true or just as true as what the Anglicans believed. Now, they believed it was true, more true, but they didn't expect the other people to believe that their theology was true. Irish immigrants wanted freedom to live and worship as Catholics to be tolerated, but they never asked Protestants in America to affirm that Catholic doctrine was the same or equally true as Protestant doctrine. They believed it was more true, but that the Catholic doctrine was more true, but they assumed that the other people would believe that their doctrine was more true. But no one expected the other side to say that mutually exclusive claims, two opposite realities, two propositions that were mutually exclusive from each other that could not both be true, nobody ever said, we want you all to believe that they're both true. But let me give you an example. Um, the reason they wouldn't do that is because it would be irrational. And yet tolerance has come to mean in our culture exactly that, irrationality. I not only have to let you believe what you want, I have to pretend that it's just as true as what I believe. That's where our culture has come around. For example, if a, if a modern Christian and a Muslim meet on an American street, they both have sacred texts, books, they regard as scripture, God's word. The Christian has a Bible and the Muslim has the Quran. One book says Jesus is the Son of God. The other book says God cannot have a son, it's impossible. One says God became a man, one says it's impossible for God to become a man. That is, they have conflicting claims about what is true. They can't both be true if you're using that thing they call reason, rationality. Now they could, in times past, tolerate one another, allow one another to exist, as happened, in places. They could debate one another. Well, we think 
he is the Son of God and here's why, and we think he's not, here's why. Or they could attack each other and have crusades and wars, which is also people have done over time. But now, all, by the way, all three of those things are reasonable things to do. No, they're not all godly things to do, but they're all reasonable things to do. To tolerate one another, to debate one another, or to have a war. You can understand why people would feel that way. But now we're being asked to do this. The Christian and the Muslim are expected to say that both of these contradictory religious claims are equally true. And that's very different. And that's not toleration as it's been traditionally understood. So people come up with little, little maxims such as, there is one God but all paths lead to him. And I guess even the paths that say there is not only one God also leads to the one God. Unless you've got more than one God. In that case, having more than one God is just as true as having one God. And anyway, I don't want to get into that. But. Or you also see it in the expression that you never used to hear at all, but now you hear all the time, especially from politicians, faith tradition. Anybody ever hear that expression? My faith tradition tells me, and that way you're saying that we all have our traditions. They're all just as true. I don't want to offend anybody. But my tradition is this. And my tradition is that. You ever hear that? Very common. The purpose of all of this is to remove the offense of truth so that everyone will get along. And that's really nice and all of that, but it has a problem. It's murder. And it's murder of the worst kind. It is the murder of truth. And when a culture murders truth, the future of that culture has to be a descent into madness and decay. It has to be. Because if there's no truth to grope for or to seek or to challenge ourselves to find, and then all is permissible, as Dostoevsky, the great Russian writer, said. If there is no God, all is permissible. And if there is no truth, all is permissible. Truth is no longer even a goal. And when truth is not a goal, passions rule. And justice collapses. It has to eventually. First it goes every direction at once, trying to make laws to account for all the different opinions and ideas and just feelings that everybody has. But that doesn't work after a while because courage dies when there's no truth and honor dies when there is no truth and pretty soon you can't hold it together anymore. You cannot advance as a culture without truth. That's why we are a culture in decline. Only scrambling around trying to make everybody feel good and passing laws to make everybody feel good. And it's just madness. The Bible does not recognize in any way the modern notion of tolerance. And I mean the modern notion that everything is equally true. It is a book of truth. The Bible makes specific truth claims and it casts aside claims that are in error. Sorry, I had to use that word. Some things are actually not true that people say and believe. And other things are true. Now, I know that's very radical, but it's actually true. By error, the Bible means lies and deception, statements that do not correspond with the way things really are. That's what a falsehood is, a statement that does not correspond with the way things really are. I could worship a tomato and say the tomato is the god of all things, and all things really came from the tomato. That's either true or it's not true. But if I say that the tomato is not God, and you say the tomato is God, one of us is wrong. We can't both be right. Although in the modern view of tolerance, we both have to, I have to respect the tomato God, and you have to respect my God, and I say, yes, my faith tradition says that tomatoes are not divine, but in your faith tradition, I understand that you believe that tomatoes are, and that's the way it has to go now. But the Bible doesn't recognize anything like that. And as you move into Romans chapter 3, we're going to encounter a commitment to the truth of God that is really staggering. And it's so 
not politically correct, it's rather shocking, perhaps. Romans 3 is continuing the line of argument that began in chapter 2, verse 17. We've been going through the book, and um, in verse 17 of chapter 2, Paul started a new um, argument, if you will, uh, and that's the right word to use. It's an argument. He's explaining some critical spiritual truths, and he is explaining why we need to reject and overthrow ideas that have hindered people from receiving these truths. And he's talking about his own people, the Jews. His subject overall is the human condition. And he's been explaining since chapter 1, verse 18, that mankind stands under the wrath of God. That everyone, the debauched pagan, the moral pagan, and the Jew, all have violated the holy law of God. Whether that law was written in letters on parchments and scrolls and sheepskins, or whether it was written on the heart through conscience. Everyone has violated the moral laws of God. Therefore, everyone stands under the wrath of God. That's his message in the first part of the book. We've learned that all men are condemned as transgressors if they break God's law, and even if in the case of those who haven't heard it, they're condemned if they break their own moral law, the one they make up for themselves, which everyone has done. And Paul is counting and arguing this way on your own experience, on everybody's experience, to tell us what he hasn't quite said yet, that he's going to say, that all men are condemned by this, that no one deserves anything other than the wrath of God. That's what all men deserve. And we know it's true because we know ourselves. And we are, as he says, more than once without excuse. Because we know that we break our own rules all the time. Not to even start to talk about God's rules, this incredibly high standard. So in chapter 3, he will plainly say that there is no righteous human being on earth. Paul has been focusing since 2.17 on his fellow Jews, people of enormous spiritual privilege. They erroneously believed in the first century that they were right with God by virtue of their position as Jews. Because they were Jewish, they were right with God. They were the chosen. They were made custodians of God's holy law. They were given the covenant sign of circumcision. And they were physical descendants of Abraham. Thus they were the inheritors of his blessings. So law and circumcision and birth were the path to salvation. Three pillars of salvation that every Jew relied on. That's what they boasted in. But Paul has demolished those three pillars, as we saw last week, of Jewish confidence. The law is not an aid to salvation because they broke it. Circumcision only increases their debt to obey the law because it makes them covenantally responsible to obey the law, but they broke it. And being a child of Abraham, Paul explains in the last two verses of chapter 2, is a matter of the heart more than a matter of physical lineage. Look at verse 28 of chapter 2. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So with these three principal confidences of the Jew taken away, law and circumcision and birth, one might expect the argument to proceed rather easily from here, but it doesn't. 
The concept of salvation by heritage was so ingrained in the Jewish mind and soul, and Paul knew it so well because he believed in that so much for many, many years of his own life. It won't just easily be set aside. So chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, continues the debate, but the arguments of his opponents start to sound more and more bizarre and not really worthwhile. But when you read it, it seems to come from real conversations that Paul has had in trying to win his countrymen to the side of Christ. You can see the argument starts up here at the lofty issues of the law and circumcision and the Jewish heritage and the promises made to Abraham. And then once those pillars are sort of knocked away, they start getting down into anything and making up kind of crazy arguments. But he's dealing with the crazy arguments, so they must have been genuine. Must have been things he had to deal with. So it reads like his Jewish friends are grasping at straws, but he takes the time to answer them. So the first eight verses contain Paul's responses to Jewish objections to the truth that all men are in need of a Savior. That's what he's dealing with. So chapter 3 begins with an exasperating question. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what benefit is circumcision? That's the question in verse 1. And that's the Jewish question. They're saying, well, if you say the law is nothing but condemning to us, if you say circumcision does nothing but condemn us, if you say that our birth as children of Abraham is nothing for us but to condemn us, then what advantage is it to be a Jew? It's like a lot of modern Jews ask that question ever since the Holocaust. And they say, well, if God chose the Jews, I wish he'd choose somebody else because it's getting kind of rough. It's almost the same kind of thing. What advantage is there? And you can understand why people trained under first century rabbis would ask this question. It's a kind of a knee-jerk reaction. Well, hey, if you say one thing we trust in serves only to condemn us, what advantage is there? Well, verse 2, Paul says there are wonderful advantages. Verse 2, great in every respect, he says. There are tremendous advantages. First of all, or you could say primarily, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jews had God's word. The Greeks didn't have it. The Egyptians didn't have it. The Chinese didn't have it. The Jews had it. And notice the word Paul uses here. Ever since verse 17 of chapter 2, he's been talking about the law because that's what the Jews took confidence in, the law. Verse 17, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law, and you see him use the term law in verse 18, then he uses it in verse 23, and then he uses it in verse 25, and then he uses it in verse 26, and then he uses it in verse 27. It's law, 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 because that's what they were counting on. The law was their confidence. But as he points out, it was a foolish confidence because they had broken it. But the Jew did have an advantage in God's word, especially with regard to, and here's the word Paul uses, oracles. He uses a different word. Now, some Bibles translate the Greek word logia as, or logia as oracles because that was a common Greek usage of the word. An oracle is like a predictive, prophetic word. Some translations just say word, but it's not law that he's talking about. What is there in God's word, the Old Testament, that is not law that is beneficial to the Jews? Well, there's much. But perhaps most of all, it would be these prophetic elements, or we could say promises. And what's the greatest promise in the Old Testament? The Messiah, right? They are so privileged because they, thousands of years before the fact, had promises that God was going to intervene in human history and bring a Redeemer, 
a savior, a ruler, a restorer, the Messiah. So they had everything to hope for in him. God made promises to the Jews, which it was their privilege to receive. Of all the peoples of the world, they had these special promises. Indeed, they were to be God's, the Jews were meant to be God's channel of these promises and hopes to the world. God made a promise to the first Jew, Abraham. He made a number of promises in Genesis chapter 12. But the key of all those promises that we are most concerned with would be this one, Genesis 12:3. In you, talking to Abraham and your descendants, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now that promise has been and will someday fully be wondrously fulfilled in his descendant, Jesus Christ, coming into the world. The part that has been fulfilled is that Jesus accomplished the work of salvation in dying as a sacrifice for sin for us. Fulfilling all the sacrificial pictures of the Old Testament. In fact, even Abraham's own sacrifice of his son Isaac, which we remember we went through a number of weeks ago how perfectly that corresponds to the death of Christ. He, Jesus, is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist said. So now, anyone, Jew or Gentile, can come to him and find mercy and pardon for sin and peace with God that will last forever. And in the future of his return, the nations will know the blessings of his reign. Earlier in the service this morning, I read from Isaiah chapter 2. It says that all the earth will stream to Jerusalem, to the mountain of God, to receive the teaching of God from there. Why? Because Messiah will rule from there. That will be his capital. And he will rule over all the earth from there. And the Jews had the promises first. And they had far more light to respond to than other people. So while the pagans were groping in darkness, the Jews had Abraham and Moses and Aaron and Joshua and David and Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and all these great men of God, to bring them truth. Men who could show what faith is and what humility is and what forgiveness means. Men who are literally spokesmen through whom God gave promises. And it is clear as well that at Christ's return, the Jews will dwell in the promised land and will serve in and populate the capital of the world, Messiah's capital. And they will be the special chosen people just like it was always promised to them. They'll be the most honored people on earth, and the nations will stream to them for wisdom. So are there advantages to being Jewish? Yeah. Right, Karen? Big advantages. <laughs> Big advantages. Things to look forward to. But that does not mean, and here's Paul's point, that individual Jews are not accountable for the rebellion and unbelief. And here's where the argument gets a little trickier. Apparently some Jews said to Paul, well... If some of us don't believe in Jesus or the Messiah, God still has to be faithful to his promises because he made these promises and save all of us or he would not be faithful. So they're challenging God's fidelity on the basis of their unbelief, which is a really curious way to go. If God's going to be faithful, he has to save all of us because that's promised. Well, it's not promised that every individual is going to be saved. Does Jewish unbelief and rejection overthrow the promises of God. That's the question. Or make him unfaithful. But Paul says, No way! Verse 3. Chapter 3. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? 
Then he says, may it never be. There's a little Greek expression, may genetop, just means no way, no way. And that's whenever you see in the New American Standard, it always translates it, may it never be. It's like this horrible, no, uh-uh, impossible. He says, may it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Great verse. Of course God will not be found faithless. And here he offers this ringing, eternal principle. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. God has kept his promise to Abraham. He is still keeping his promises to Abraham. He will keep his promises to Abraham. And he's saying there's one thing we know for sure is true. There's one thing you have an absolute certainty about, and that is that God is true. And men can do what they want, they can say what they want, they can believe what they want, they can publish what they want, they can ignore Him or revile Him as they will, but He will be unchanged by all of that. What He does is unaffected by any of that. His truth will be as solid as it ever has been before such tiny creatures as mankind ever even existed. Truth is not determined by vote or majority opinion or convenience or utility. Truth begins with God and is determined by His nature and His word and His will. And nothing can or will ever change that, ever. It is blasphemous to suggest infidelity in Him or weakness in Him in fulfilling His promises. So in verse 4, Paul quotes King David in Psalm 51. He says, As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy words and mightest prevail when thou judgest or art judged. That God would prevail in judgment and in his word. Now, do you know that psalm? He didn't just pluck a psalm, a words out of a psalm and just say, hey, there's a good sort of psalm word to back me up. You know what Psalm 51 is? That is the great psalm of confession and repentance after David stole a man's wife and conspired to have the man slain so he could cover up his immorality and his sin. And after he was finally exposed and publicly brought to the point of confessing his sin, David wrote this great psalm of repentance. David is telling God in that psalm that God is right to condemn him. That he is perfectly just and would be perfectly just in taking David and casting him off forever. In a sense, David is siding with God against himself. You are right when you judge me, he's saying, because I'm guilty. There's no bending of the rules. There's no twisting of the rules. There's no excuses being offered. David doesn't say, oh, I'm circumcised. He didn't say, I made the law. I'm, I'm Jewish. He doesn't say, I'm a child of Abraham. I, I know I did a bad thing, but you know. There's not a word like that. Any, in any way like that in this psalm or anything that David wrote about his own sinfulness. David said, God, you are just when you judge me. And that is the attitude that was missing from Paul's contemporary Jewish brethren. 
No truth, only rationalizing and sidestepping and clinging to foolish theological notions which would let them feed their pride that they could claim superiority to other people in the world. David was not like that. And that's what Paul's saying. David wasn't like that, so how can you lesser men cling to such silly notions that your salvation is based on your birth or on some physical ceremony or the fact that you simply possess the law while you break it? There's another psalm I'd like to refer to briefly. Psalm 145 is, is all about God's goodness and God's greatness and His majesty and His mercy and His provision is personally my favorite song. And near the end of that psalm, in verse 18, it says this, The Lord is near to all who call upon Him. Now, in Hebrew poetry, there's always a second line. And the second line explains and defines the first line. It says, the Lord is near to all, call, all who call upon him. That's the first line. And the second line says, to all who call upon him in truth. You see? He is near. That's a term of salvation in the Old Testament. Near, saved, far, lost. To all those who call upon him in truth is he near. What truth? The truth. His truth. That's what David did. David didn't take a poll like Kinsey did back in the 40s looking at sexual morals in America and find out what percentage of ancient Near Eastern kings were adulterers and say, well, 70% of ancient Near Eastern kings were adulterers, so that's a normal human behavior. Therefore, since it's so common and so normal, there's nothing wrong with it. That's what modern people do. He didn't do that. He wasn't making excuses. Surely you can't make a big deal out of such a common little frailty. No, no excuses. The truth, the truth is seeing things the way God sees them. It's looking at it from his perspective. And David did that. Took him a while, but that's where he came to. Paul quoted just a sentence in Psalm 51. The full verse that he quoted goes like this. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge. Fully acknowledging the whole affair from God's perspective. Looking at it the way God would look at it. And he goes on to plead with God for a clean heart. Not based on his birth or his heritage or his goodness or anything else, but just pleading for mercy. And the wonderful thing is he got it. Because God is faithful. Oh, that modern men would measure themselves by God's standard and see their life from his perspective. Well, back in Romans 3, there's another attempt to sidestep in verse 5. This is really an amazing thing. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Then Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms. He's throwing out their argument. And it, it's very perverse. Maybe it's sarcastic. It comes out like this. Listen. Paul, you say God's righteousness is manifested in our disobedience. In other words, we are wicked covenant breakers, broke the law and all this. God is faithful through it all, which makes him glorious. So how can he blame us 
for being bad when our being bad makes him glorious because his fidelity and greatness looks even better. How can he condemn us for that, making him look good? Isn't that a stupid argument? But there are actually people that start to think that way. See, now we're getting from the great ideas down to the goofy ideas, but this is how people reason. We're actually helping God in his work by being corrupt, you know? Because he looks all the more holy and, and, and uh, great when compared to us. And, you know, wouldn't it make God unrighteous to send his wrath on us when all of our sin helps him display his faithfulness? It's just sick, you know. And in verse 6, verse six Paul says again, again, a time it would never be, for otherwise how would God judge the world? I mean, that's ridiculous. All judgment would be out of bounds. It would be a thoroughly unjust universe. It's crazy. And then the argument sort of repeated in verse 7. It says, but if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? It's just dumb. If through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why would he judge me as a sinner? You see, if God looks better when we lie, why would he judge us for that? Because he wants to look good, right? Now, you know, there's something about all this stuff. All the way through, right from the circumcision idea, the law idea, the birth idea, all the way down to these goofy ideas, that's really common. You can see the wicked thinker working, and he's on to something. He actually is on to something. Unbelievers really don't understand at all a God-centered view of life. They, they can be religious, but they, don't, but they don't get it. It's like when you talk about God as the absolute passion of your life, your, the delight of your heart, and they're just like, that's weird. They really think it's weird. I mean, it's weird. Because to them, well, it's like religion. That's just one thing people do, you know. And I might do it if I feel like I need a help or, you know, if I get all bummed out or I need some kind of a thing. And um, If you talk to people that have really been in foxholes, under fire, they'll tell you that they all get real religious real quick. I mean, there's all kinds of purposes to get religion. And they're always trying to psychologize faith and explain it away in terms how it meets some deep need in people's psyche or whatever, because they don't get it. They think our faith is all about us and not about God at all, because, well, it's just too weird to think that the, he's, it's too weird to think that the creator of the universe is actually the center of all things. Why is that weird? I don't know, because it makes perfect sense to me. But they think that's weird, that he should be like the center of everything. They cannot conceive of a God-centered human heart. So when Christians talk about God's glory and loving God and delighting in God, a, a kind of a cloud descends over their minds, and they, and they just don't get it. It's weird to them. So, so here the unbeliever is playing his game. He's trying to figure it out. He's trying to explain it all. Well, you want God to be glorified. You say his glory is being seen in his fidelity and his faithfulness, even when we are unfaithful. So let's really glorify him by being evil. It's kind of a joke. And Paul says in verse 8, interestingly, he says, as we are slanderously reported and some affirm that we say. What did the apostles teach was the basis of salvation? Grace and not law. Grace through faith apart from the works of the law. That there is nothing you can do to please God through deeds because you always fall so far short. And so they were accused by self-righteous religious people of, of uh, promoting evil, which of course was totally wrong. Christians, because we believe in salvation by grace apart from law keeping, are charged with promoting evil. 
It's a deliberate misunderstanding, but that's what they're pushing on Paul with this silly sort of idea. And Paul says at the very end of verse 8, their condemnation is just. Their condemnation is just. Why? Playing around, making light of sin, impugning God's righteousness and mercy, that's damnable stuff. I mean, literally it is. And frankly, that's where man-centered thinking ends up. It always diminishes man's guilt. It always makes light of God's holiness and decides quite on its own that sin is just no big deal really after all. And if there's any kind of nice God out there at all, he'd be nice to us when it's time for us to face him. Well, we started this morning talking about truth. Is, is sin a big deal or not? Is God's wrath real or not? It can't be both. It can't be real or not real. He can't be targeting sinners with divine wrath which will obliterate people and not be doing that at the same time. One of those is true. But not both of them. Did Jesus have to suffer, suffer unspeakable agonies to bear your sin, or didn't he? So you either did or he didn't. They can't both be true. And the place where Paul is going with all of this stuff is a claim, a truth claim that is hated and rejected by men, yet it is the starting point of genuine theology, and that's why the greatest of all theology books, the book of Romans, starts with it. Because it's so critical. It is a great truth. It's the first truth on the road to salvation. And it is either true or it's not true. And here it is, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. That's where theology begins. That is either true or it is not true. There are no righteous people. None. Not even one. It's so Hebraic. You know, we say they in English. That's very much so. And the Jews didn't have the word very. They just said it many times. <laughs> there was none righteous before God. No, not one. Not even one. Nope, none. Uh-uh. I mean, they just said it over and over. That's how they emphasize something. Two Psalms in the Old Testament. That was their hymn book. They sang these words in, in, in the synagogue. There was none righteous, not even one. There was none who understands. There was none who seeks for God. That's a song. You know, I couldn't find any songs in a hymnal that say that a whole lot. Like, let's just sing about how evil we are. That, there's two psalms that are almost exactly the same in the Old Testament, and these are those words from that, those psalms. There's none righteous, not even one. Gentile, Jew, it doesn't matter. Everyone counting on his being a good man to earn favor with God and merit eternal life with him is going to be sadly disappointed. That's what the point is. There are no righteous people, not by God's standard. This is so offensive an idea that if you say it in a room full of people, the whole mood will become immediately hostile. Try it sometime. Do you know 
that there's no righteous people on the earth and everyone is doomed and that God's wrath has targeted all mankind because we're all guilty of gross and immoral sin in his eyes and we are, we're all doomed? Did you know that? Oh, they'll start gnashing their teeth. I mean, literally, they will. It's the great unspoken truth. Something no one wants to be reminded of. All men are sinners before God and deserve, deserve, with perfect justice, only wrath and condemnation. Why do people hate this truth? Because salvation means setting aside pride and self-confidence and doing it my way, as Frank Sinatra would say. There is a way to be right with God. There is a way to be right with God. And Paul will tell us how in verses 21 through 25 of the same chapter. That's for next week. <laughs> but it means acknowledging our profound guilt before his throne. It means siding with God in his evaluation of us, as David did. It means agreeing with God about our weakness, our failure, and our inadequacy. And humbly, here's, that's the key thing, humbly, with broken hearts, taking God's solution for our problem, which is the death of his son in our place. And we will explain next time exactly how that works with God's justice next week, because it's a really important idea. And this is the most wonderful paragraph in the whole Bible that explains it. Coming up. So what should we do now that God's word has pronounced us unrighteous? We should ask him. See, if God says everybody's unrighteous, if God came down to you in a vision and said, everyone is unrighteous, there are no righteous people. I have scanned the earth and all are bad. If he said that to you, which is exactly what he's saying, what would your question be? My question, if I was brave enough to ask one, would be, is there any way for a wicked man in your sight to be righteous? Is there any way? That would be my question. And you know what? There is. And that's for next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of the word as Paul expresses it here. Indeed, um, taking the, the Old Testament revelation which they had had for a thousand years and putting it right to them. There is none righteous, not even one. And for that, we should be humbled, as indeed I am, and seek you on your terms and not ask you to bend to our terms. How foolish, how man-centered, how mad that is to do that. And Lord, I just pray that you would persuade us by the power of the Spirit and awaken our hearts to the truth that you would have us to embrace about who you really are, what you really expect, what mankind has become, and what you've done to solve our problem. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.